When, when I was born, my birth certificate says I'm a Roman Catholic, and so it was just me and my mom in the first years, and, and uh, we, we never really went to church, but um, it was uh, later on when she married my stepfather, he uh, was a Southern Baptist, and so we started going to the Southern Baptist Church, and in the Southern Baptist Church that we went to, it was um, old school Southern Baptist, King James Version only, every week was a salvation lesson. Now I want to say that I've been around the theological block. I have a great appreciation for all of the the groups that I've been part of, and each of them have been unique and wonderful, and God's certainly given me something from each one. So it was there that I, at five years of age, walked the the aisle there at Northwest Baptist Church there in North Miami. And um, over a few years, we'd kind of gone to some other churches, but we wound up in what was called the holiness movement. Now, the holiness movement is a, a wonderful thing. That's the, the group that I went to uh, seminary with and Bible college, and I have a great appreciation for the holiness movement. You know, he, it really is called the Holy Spirit, and uh, sometimes we forget that. But uh, I would say that I, I had a wonderful experience, and if you've ever been part of the holiness movement, you know that your world revolves around camp meeting, and uh, that was a great time. Now, I would say that through the years I've come to the place where I have a very different list as to what it means to be holy before the Lord than uh, what my, my good friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and the holiness movement would have. I would hold it has a lot more to do with what's going on in the inside. So it was after that, um, after seminary, that I wound up in a very charismatic background. Saw some wonderful things, saw some kind of strange things, but it was there that I really learned about the work of the Holy Spirit and how he manifests and and, uh, all all the things that take place there. So I would say that I am uh, what you would call a charismatic. That would be it. Now here on Sunday morning, we believe in the teaching of the Word of God, and so that's what we do here on Sunday morning. And also I would say that that, um, a few years ago, we became also affiliated. We are at Calvary Chapel, and we also became affiliated with the Southern Baptist. Uh, so we have a dual affiliation. We're Baptist, and we're also Calvary Chapel. Now, Calvary, as you might know, would be a very charismatic group, and then the Baptists, you know, some are, some are not. So as a charismatic Baptist, you would call me a Bapticostal. And so that's kind of where <laughs> I'm kind of at. Then it was shortly after uh, my experience in, in the charismatic church, learned a lot of great things, wound up in a, in a group of churches where we focused in on things like success, we focused in on things like relationship principles, we business principles, financial principles, all good stuff. And I do believe, and I learned a lot of great things, I do believe that God wants to see his children win. In Psalm 35, 27 it says, the Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of of his servants. So I believe that God wants his kids to win just like you want your kids to win. Learned a lot of great things and uh, that was a good thing. Good stuff, good stuff there. And uh, then it was years later that I wound up at a Calvary chapel, which is where I, uh, where God spoke to me and said, this is what you're to do. And that's a story for another day. But although I had grown up in the church and had been around the theological block, you might say, I had never really encountered what we would call Bible prophecy because of the the background that I was from. So when I started hearing some of the things that we're going to talk about today, initially I was like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. But then I began to study and I began to research and I became convinced based upon the overwhelming 
overwhelming evidence that the things that the Bible talks about are absolutely true. As I studied culture and history and and things of that nature, and we'll reference some of that today. But there's so much more than what we're going to look at today that the Bible talks about. Today we're going to scratch the surface. And I say all that to say, if this is new to you, I get that because um, I come from a background where we never talked about these things. And uh, here at Calvary we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. And so when we come to these things, we talk about them. Now we're going to talk about something today that I love to talk about. So uh, we'll, we'll see that as we go. Matthew 24. Is everybody okay, by the way, so far? Nobody's freaked out yet? All right, we'll get going. All right, Matthew 24. Now, we began this last week, and you'll recall from last week that we we mentioned that as our story picks up, we're literally just a couple of days away from the crucifixion. And so Jesus has pronounced a great deal of judgment there in in Jerusalem and Israel and uh, their rejection of him. And so verse 1 of chapter 24 from last week, Jesus came out of the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And uh, that happened in 70 AD. And we talked about that last week. The disciples are perplexed at this. Uh, that was not the, what they thought Jesus was going to say. So they wait till Jesus is alone. Verse 3, it says, they, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, we talked about that last week, saying, tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They're asking three questions. Jesus is going to take the rest of the chapter to answer their three questions. When will these things take place? The temple will be destroyed. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So he is going to lay all that out. Last week we mentioned that in verse 4, Jesus doesn't say, why are you focusing in on that? You know, it all pans out. Don't give your attention to that. You know, just there's more things more important. Notice what Jesus says as he responds, as he begins. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Some of your Bibles would say that, that no one deceives you. But the idea is that Jesus says, I'll answer your question as I do, you need to make sure that no one deceives you, no one misleads you in these things. I'll tell you, but you are responsible to understand them. So he began by giving the overview. Verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead or deceive many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. We talked about that last week. And then he said, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So here are the things that are going to be going on. He says these things must take place. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and in various places there will be famines and there will be earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. And so he says these things must take place. And then he used the illustration of birth pangs. You know, when a woman gets pregnant, you have this increasing uh, sense of uncomfortableness as she goes. But at a certain point, you know, there, there might be some false starts along the way. There might be some contractions along the way. But at a certain point, labor kicks in. And when labor kicks in, the birth pangs, the contractions become closer and closer together and more and more intense. And so it's like that. It would go for a long period of time, but at a certain point these things are really going to kick in. And, and so we talked about this last week. You know, when you think of the Civil War in our country in the 1860s, uh, that was bad, but then you had World War I and that was really bad, but it was just a couple of decades later and you had World War II and that was really, really bad. 
And then we talked about how you have, uh, we talked about earthquakes and things of that nature and how it was in 2004, the first time in our lifetime we had seen an actual tsunami. And, uh, but that was on the other side of the world. But then it was in 2011 and then there was another tsunami in Japan. And for most of us who, who've been around for several decades, we'd never seen anything like that. And I mentioned last week that you can go on, you can go online and find a YouTube video that goes through the five most uh, recent tsunamis that were caught on video. We don't hear of all of them, but they, they certainly have begun to happen, and they're all around the world. And last week we referenced how we've all been watching what's taking place in Hawaii, and as of this morning they're saying there's no end in sight. And, uh, but as after we spoke last week, we saw what took place in Guatemala, and there's an actual website that you can go to that tells you of every volcano on the planet. And right now there are 20 volcano, 20 plus volcanoes that are currently in full eruption mode. Our news tends to focus in on one because that's most near and dear to our heart. But it's, it's, it's happening. These are like birth pangs. And uh, we talked about last week, they're not the sign, but they will increase. So then last week we went through Matthew 24 all the way up to verse 31, and Jesus gave the overview of 2,000 years, and then went through the time period that we would call the tribulation, and we talked about that. So today he's going to give us the sign. Before we go any further, I I wanted to share something. If you've been around Calvary for some time, you've certainly heard this before, but God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah about 800 years before Jesus was even born. And God speaking about the nation of Israel, here's what he said there in your outline. He says, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain. God's going to recover his people into the land. There will only be a remnant of them, those who remain. Something very bad has just happened to the Jewish people and only a remnant uh, will take place. And he's going to gather them, it says, from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, that's modern day Iraq, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. They didn't have a word for continents, they just had uh, in, in ancient Hebrew. So they just said islands of the sea, across the ocean. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and he will assemble the banished ones of Israel. They'd been kicked out of their country. And will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, the four corners of the earth. So God said in 800 BC, he says, there's going to come a time when I'm going to bring Israel back into its homeland the second time. Now, when he said that, Israel had not been removed from its homeland the first time. The first time Israel was removed from its homeland is what you and I would call the Babylonian captivity, where Nebuchadnezzar the king comes in, and you have all those stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, you know, for 70 years that takes place. That was the first time. But he says he will recover them again the second time. Well, when would they be removed the second time? Well, the second time took place in 70 AD. Uh, We talked about this last week, Titus Vespasian, the Roman general comes in, decimates Jerusalem, Israel, the temple, and at that point Israel ceases to exist as a nation. And they literally, the Jewish people go into what the Bible calls the four corners of the earth. Well, he said that he would come at a certain point, God would bring his people back into the homeland. 
And uh, interesting, Israel is the only nation that has ever been a nation to not be a nation for almost 2,000 years to then become a nation again. But in this prophecy, it says it would only be the remnant of his people who will remain. Now, they became a nation in 1948. What had just happened just prior to that, that only a remnant would remain? It was the Holocaust. It was the Holocaust. And so after that, he says he would bring his people back into the land of Israel. Now, because this was so incredible that 2,000 years, the church would look at that and say, well, this is probably allegorical, spiritual, but it literally took place. So in 1948, the nation of Israel becomes a nation again they begin moving back into their homeland. And I, I would tell you that only God could pull that off. I know the United Nations likes to take credit for it, but uh, God says, I will by my hand do this. So back to our story, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Um, we're going to pick it up. The disciples have come to Jesus and they have said, tell us the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Last week he gave us the overview Now he says, I'm going to give you the sign of my coming. So we're going to pick it up on verse uh, 32, verse 32. And it says, now, and this is very different. He says, now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near. How near? Right at the door. And I've I've underlined that. There on your outline, I've put that verse. It says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. Interesting, our English word parable comes from the Greek word, which is just parabole. And uh, so that's how it is. And the idea is that Jesus says, I'm going to answer your question, the sign of my coming. I'm going to tell it to you in a parable. I'm going to use some symbolic language, but you're supposed to understand it. And uh, so he says, learn the parable from specifically the fig tree. So don't miss this. Verse 32, he says, learn the parable from the fig tree. And one of the things that you find as you travel through the Bible, uh, there's this term that we use, and it's called expositional constancy, which means that God tends to, or uses the same symbols in the same way. So anytime you see the dove in the Bible, it's always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you see the dragon, it's always the symbol of Satan. It's never the symbol of the Holy Spirit because he keeps his symbols constant. So anytime you see the symbol Israel used as a symbol or, or the fig tree used as a symbol, it always refers to Israel. So there on your outline I put in the Bible, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. And you can look that up in Hosea chapter 9 verse 10. So verse 32, he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is right at the door. A fig tree, if you've lived up north, you certainly have seen this. A fig tree, when it hits winter, looks very dead. And uh, after a very long winter, all of a sudden when spring comes, it begins to put forth its buds, it begins to put forth its leaves. When you see that, you know that the next season is summer. So here's what he's saying. He says, I'm telling you a parable about the fig tree. When you see Israel after a very long winter where it looks dead and all of a sudden it begins to come back to life, 1948, here's what you can bet. 
that the, the next season is going to be summer, he is standing at the door. He's very, very near. So Israel is going to look dead for a very long period of time, but it's going to come back to life. So the sign will be that Israel becomes a nation again. Verse 33 says, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is right at the door. When you see Israel become a nation again, recognize that he is right at the door. Verse 34, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He's been asked about the end of the age and the sign of his coming. That's what he's responding to. So when he says this generation will not pass away, he's not talking about the generation 2,000 years ago. He's talking about the generation that sees Israel become a nation again. That generation will not pass away. My mom was eight years old when Israel became a nation in 1948. And uh, she and her generation are still going, but you know, getting, getting uh, closer. Be careful how I say that because I'm going to have to face my mom. But, uh, <laughs> so, but Jesus knows as he says this, so you know Israel becomes a nation again, uh, that he will be standing at the door and uh, then verse 35, he knows how strange this would be to us. So he says, just so you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we will know that generation, verse 36, he says, but of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. So you and I, we won't know the day, we won't know the hour, but we know the generation that sees Israel become a nation again, when Israel comes back to life. So we don't set dates. You know, we don't say it's going to be on this day. We know the generation. We know that generation will not pass away, but we don't set dates. And some have done that. So then he takes his answer one step further. Verse 37, he says, I'm going to take it a step further. He says, so for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. So we're going to go over something that we went over last fall. But verse 38, he says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So you're going to have these birth pangs that are going to increase. Israel's going to become a, a nation again. But then he says it's going to be like the days of Noah. Now it's important to, to highlight, he says they were buying, they were selling, they were giving in marriage. So we're going to find that it was a uh, business as usual and a very unusual time. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But I want to go just a couple of verses further. Verse 40, we're going to talk about this next week. As we talk about the sign of his coming, then we're going to talk about him coming. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. That's an event that we refer to as the rapture of the church. Now in Luke's gospel it says there are two in bed, uh, one's taken, one's left. And, and then you have two at the, at the mill grinding, so you have an evening event, you have a morning event, then two in the field, that's in the daytime. So it's going to be this worldwide event day, morning, night, that takes place instantaneous. Some are taken, some are not. Uh, We're going to talk about that next week and what that means. So what I want you to do here is uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. 
Is this at least interesting so far? Good. Okay. Preach it. Okay. We'll do that. Good. All right. So there on your outline, um, Matthew 24, 37, it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. What he's saying is whatever was going on in the days of Noah is going to be going on at the time period that Jesus comes back for the church. And again, we'll talk about that event next week. It's also important to note that he never says as it was in the days of Isaiah or as it was in the days of Ezekiel. He says as it was specifically in the days of Noah and another time he says as it was in the days of Lot. That's a conversation for another day. So the question is, what was going on? Well, we looked at this last fall, so we're going to kind of go through this uh, a little fast, but we'll, we'll uh, talk about some things. Verse 1 of chapter 6 of Genesis. Now the days of Noah are all in Genesis chapter 6. That's where it talks about the days of Noah. So verse 1 it says, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land that daughters were born to them. So I always like to say there was a population explosion. Uh, write that down. So when Noah gets off the boat, there's eight people. By the time you come to Jesus, there's 80 to 90 million people. From the time of Jesus to the time of our civil war in America, to get to 1 billion, uh, it took almost 2,000 years to get to 1 billion, 1860s. Well, from that point to go to 2 billion, it took 70 years, and that was in the 1930s. But then 30 years later, in 1965, we had a world population of 3 billion. But 30 years after that, 1995, we had a population, we didn't add a billion, we doubled. And so we went to 6 billion, and we are way over 7 billion right now. So there's a population explosion. Here's where it gets uh, weird, but really fun. So it says, uh, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, they're very different, were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. He's not saying that man will live 120 years. He's saying that in 120 years, that's when judgment comes is what he's saying. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now how many of your Bibles, it doesn't say Nephilim, it says giants. Good. Hold them up. Giants. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, that's good. We'll talk about that. So your Bible says Nephilim or giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward, underline also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So let me oversimplify this. We talked about this last fall. Uh, Write this down. They began to mix and alter DNA. Mix and alter DNA. When it says the sons of God, the Hebrew there is B'nai Elohim. And uh, B'nai Elohim is an Old Testament way of saying angels. Angels. So what this is saying is that angels, sons of God, B'nai Elohim, uh, came and they went into the, without being graphic, the daughters of men and they had offspring. And those offspring were called Nephilim. So the question is, can angels really do that? Well, it's interesting in the New Testament, we talked about this a few weeks ago, where they come to Jesus and they have this woman and she's been married to seven guys. And the question is, well, who's she going to be married to in eternity? And Jesus responded there in your outline, I took it from Mark's gospel, and it says, when they rise from the dead, 
They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now it's interesting that Jesus felt like he needed to say angels in heaven. He didn't just say angels. Why, why is that? Well, what we're going to find is that the Bible teaches that there were some angels who did some pretty bizarre things. So you have in the book of Jude. Now Jude is considered the introduction to the book of Revelation. It's so bizarre that pretty much 99.9% of you have never been in church where they've done a study on the book of Jude. Has anybody ever been in church where they did a study on the book of Jude? And uh, there's a reason why, okay, one person, two person, three. That blows my theory. (laughs) 99%, okay. So, So, but most people have never, because of what it actually teaches. So notice what it says there in your outline. In Jude it would say, for the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, and we're going to find that their proper abode is a spirit world, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They abandoned their abode, which was the spiritual realm, and they did something so bad that God said, I'm going to put you in bonds in prison until the judgment day, and uh, then things are going to go bad. So who are these angels who are in this eternal bonds? Well, Peter would say it like this, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting. And here's when, when the days uh, in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So those are the angels. The Bible says that's what they did. They were disobedient. They were put in bonds. Genesis tells us what they did that was disobedient and then also tells us what the result was. In verse 4 it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. The word Nephilim is the word in the original Hebrew. There in your outline, just write this down, it just means fallen ones, fallen ones. Some of your Bibles will say giants and there's a good reason for that. We'll talk about that in a moment. Since they weren't really human, they couldn't be saved, and uh, they also weren't really angelic, and so uh, they were fallen. And uh, when it says that they were men of renown, as some of your Bibles talk about, it doesn't mean that they had a good reputation, it means they had a renown for evil. And uh, you, you hear that some of the, that word can also be translated as tyrants or bully, that word for renown. So 300 years before Jesus was born, the world started speaking Greek. So the Jewish people said, we need to translate the Bible into a language that everybody can understand, which was Greek. So they translated the Bible into Greek, and when they did, they took that verse, Genesis 6-4, and that Bible was called the Septuagint, and they said, now the giants were upon the earth in those days and after that. They understood 300 years before Jesus was born That's what took place, and that's what these beings were like. Now we might discount this because it does not fit the evolutionary narrative that our society tends to embrace, or the naturalistic narrative. But in every society around the world, every society in their folklore, there is always the stories of giants. If you have something that happens in one culture, and then you have the same story in another culture that has no contact, and they have the same story, you need to look at that. It it means something. So they have that. In verse 4 it says, and afterward. So um, you know the story, the nation of Israel 
Moses was leading them to the, the promised land. And uh, they send spies into the promised land. And, and here's what it says. There also we saw the Nephilim, and this is like hundreds of years after Genesis chapter, chapter 6. Therefore we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and you want to underline that, are part of the Nephilim, the fallen ones. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. They, they were giants. When it says Anak, the word Anak there, I put it from the Hebrew, just means long-necked. It was a race of giants, the descendants of Anak. There was a race of Nephilim, they were called the Anakim, the sons of Anak. And uh, Anak just means long necks. Have you ever seen, maybe in some Egyptian pictures or ancient pictures, you have this head and there's this really long neck? It might be more than an artist's rendition. There was a race of people called the Anakim, is what the Bible says. So they went in and it says there in your outline, King Og of Bashan was the last of the giant Rephaites. His iron, by the way, Rephaites just means giants. His iron bed was more than 13 feet long and six feet wide. And so the Bible talks about this, but you can find this in, in a number of places. You, you can read when the Spanish explorers came over to the New World and they came to Central and South America, the captains kept logs. And uh, in some of their logs they would talk about encountering these beings that were very, very tall and they had six fingers and six toes and two rows of teeth. And in one case they actually captured one of these beings. They said, we've got to take this back to the king of, of Spain. He's got to see this. So they captured one of these things. They get about halfway across the ocean and in his log it says, the thing died. We tried to get back to Spain but it, it began to stink so bad that we finally got to the place where like, it's going to kill us. So they threw it overboard. But it's in the captain's logs and the explorers wrote about these things that they saw. Again, a lot of that is taken out of your history, uh, and I would suggest because of, of a, uh, a narrative that they want you to have. I'm a conspiracy theorist. Have I told you this? Yeah. yeah. So my motto is just because you're not paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. So, <laughs> so, so I, I, I love to research these things and see what men of, re, you know, the, the, the thinkers in the past said. And so these things are all written down. So Jesus says this will increase and it will continue at the time that Jesus comes back. There will be the commingling of DNA. And you, live in, you and I live in the first generation since that time where we actively mix DNA. As a matter of fact, one article, I'll just read you the article, I mentioned it last time, 100, 150 human-animal hybrids grown in UK labs. They are putting human DNA with animal DNA, and they are creating a completely different organism. Now they are, are, are doing that. Uh, they're allowed to do that in countries like ours, but there are other. But we have certain ethics, so they don't grow these things. But there are other articles that say that they are growing these things. But this thing is taking place uh, around the world, and you and I live in the only generation where that has ever taken place since the Bible talked about it. When we study through the Book of Daniel. Daniel talked about this end times event there in your outline. It says, they will mingle with the seed of men. Whoever they are are not, the, are not men, but they will mingle with the seed of men and they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. So there will be in the last days this, co- this mixing of DNA. 
that rabbit hole goes a whole lot further. I'm not going to go into it today, but it's a very, very fascinating study. You and I live in the only generation where that could take place. Well, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I've put that verse there in your outline, and it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there would be an unusual evil imagination. Write that down. Uh, Since Israel became a nation, you and I live in the only generation where we can participate in things that would be evil without actually participating. We can participate through our imagination through entertainment, through video games, through the web, through all all of these things. And we're not actually participating, but our imagination is there. Last time I talked about a video game that many of our children play, and it's called Grand Theft Auto. And uh, when you do certain things in in that game, as part of the reward, a prostitute comes out and she performs sex acts that you can see. And, uh, and uh, our kids are playing this. If you have that at home, you need to throw that away. And if you have that in your house and you keep it, don't tell anybody that Calvary is your church, okay? <laughs> so, but we engage in entertainment that grieves the heart of God. And Jesus says it will be just the same in that generation. You and I live in the only generation where that could take place. Verse 6 he says, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. He doesn't throw a temper tantrum he's just grieved. The Lord said I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from, from man to animals to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I made them. Here it's important, uh, you can sound, it can sound like God's being mean but that's not the case. If you have a dog that has rabies, you call animal control, animal control comes and they put the dog down. And the reason that they do that is that there's no cure for this. Once the DNA has been changed, you can't change it back into what's human. And so you can't change it. But then you put the dog down so that it doesn't continue the infection with anybody else. So God says, I'm, I'm going to have to you know, wipe, wipe this out. It's a mercy killing. So verse 8, he says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God, eyes of the Lord. We'll come back to that. Verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his time. Uh, The word blameless, tome, in the original language means pure in the sense that uh, we we tend to think it's behavioral, but um, it implies that he was still fully human. His bloodline, like the others, had not been altered in any way. Blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, um, again, he was fully human, as was his family. Verse 11 is where it gets very interesting for me uh, in this generation. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. If you don't have that underlined, you want to underline that. The earth was filled with violence. Write that down. Violence was accelerating. Maybe they were flying jets in the buildings. Maybe they were shooting people in mass shootings. Uh, maybe they were putting pressure cookers where people gathered together and blowing up people. And, uh, and, uh, but it was accelerating in that time. Last time I uh, t- 
talked about this. I had my notes. Maybe they were walking to clubs in Orlando and shooting 100 people. Uh, maybe they were in a hotel and shooting and shooting, killing up to 59 people and wounding over 500. And it just seems like every year it gets worse and worse and worse. And the Bible says it will accelerate. Now, what I find so interesting, and I know you've heard this before, but when it says there in your outline, the earth was filled with violence, the Hebrew word for violence is the word Hamas. Hamas. Hamas is uh, the same name as a terrorist group that right now is surrounding Israel. Hamas is one of the largest terrorist organizations on the planet, and it's interesting to me that the Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. So literally you could say Hamas was covering the earth. And Hamas represents a religion, it represents an ideology, and it represents practices. Last year Hamas graduated 13,000 youths from their terrorist program. They actually have a school of terrorism where they teach people to go to kill Jewish people and those of us who are non-Muslims. And last year they graduated 13,000 and that was double the year before that. It is increasing. Do you find that interesting? So it says the earth was filled with violence or the earth was filled with Hamas. Hamas. Now it could be that that word Hamas is there by accident or it could be that God is letting us know of what is to come. And I would hold that God is letting us know. Paul would say it like this. Now Paul's writing in the Greek so it's very different words. He says you must understand this. In the last days there will be violent periods of time. Violent periods of time. You and I live in a generation where these things are increasing exponentially. Some people will respond by saying we need to protest the violence, we need to campaign against the violence, Um, but I'm here to tell you that the Bible says that it's going to increase. And so all those things may be good, but you might be wise to prepare for the things that are coming. And we mentioned that last week. Well, we know the rest of the story of Noah. He says, just like the days of Noah, But there's something that's very important that we often miss, and I want you to write this down. In the days of Noah, when those who had been warned, invited into a relationship with God, invited to come on the the ark, but they rejected that. So here's what we get. There in your outline, only a few would believe and prepare for what God said is absolutely coming. Paul would say it like this on your outline, by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. It's coming, he says. In reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness which is according to faith. It will be just the same when Jesus comes back for the church. Most people will not embrace what we just shared. So they will not prepare and that's a, a, a sad thing. Noah's message, Noah's message when he was told, this is what is coming, you need to prepare for what is coming, his message was not, we're going to win it back, we're going to make it great. His message was one message, you need to prepare for what is absolutely coming. He was warned about the things that were coming, and he chose to prepare. Most people did not like the message they rejected that. 
So here's the part that I want to focus in on as we, as we wrap up. I said to come back to verse 8. It says there in your outline, Noah found grace in the eyes of Jehovah. Grace is not a common word in the Old Testament. But it's interesting that he says about, Jehovah, uh, about Noah that he found grace. So here's what we get. In the midst of that final generation, God called Noah to an incredible journey of faith to accomplish something great in his time. When society was going in a completely different direction, God came to Noah and called him to do something great in that time. We also get from that because we see that Noah's family did get on the ark and they were preserved through. So here's what this means. To accomplish God's purpose, God would need to provide, protect, and preserve Noah and his family. And he did. But Noah understood the time in which he lived in. You and I live in the generation that saw Israel become a nation again. It's the only nation that existed as a nation, did not exist as a nation for 2,000 years, became a nation again. Jesus said, when you see that take place, you know that he is near right at the door. That generation will not pass away. You will not know the hour. You will not know the day. But you will know the generation. Next week, there is an event that we refer to as the rapture of the church. And it's the next event in our story. One is taken and the other one is left. We're going to talk about that next week. You don't want to miss that. Did you find that interesting today? Good. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we go through these things, Lord, for many of us, these are strange because we come from church backgrounds that didn't talk about these things, made us uncomfortable. But Lord, we want to be the people who look at what you say, and because you say it, and because we can look at history and archaeology and the culture and all of those things and see that they're absolutely true, we want to see, we want to believe, and we want to act in accordance with what it is that, that you have shared with us. We want to be people who are prepared, not those who, like most, decided to reject the message and missed out on what it is that you wanted to do. Father, I thank you for this congregation, and I thank you for their hunger for your word and the things of you. I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.